Welcome to Justice Studio Sessions. I am Marianne Moore, foundress of Justice Studio. During these sessions, we will be exploring the social justice themes that have emerged through Justice Studio's work, showcase grassroots activism, and deep dive into ethical and equitable research and consultancy methods. Stay tuned to learn more about the complexities of social justice and how you can turn your passion into action. Hello, dear listeners. In this episode, we are going to be talking about equitable quantitative research. Quantitative research is everything to do with numbers and statistics and things that they call hard data. And we have an amazingly intelligent woman talking to us today. She's called Heather Krauss, and she's a data scientist and cross-sector thought leader in data equity issues. Caring passionately about data and people, she set up We All Count, which fosters a data equity community through their newsletter and forum. I'm really excited to be able to talk to Heather today. Let's get into the discussion. So it's very exciting that today's podcast episode is on quantitative data analysis and equity within quantitative data. And our guest today is Heather Kraus. And Heather, it's so lovely to have you on the podcast. Thank you so much. It's really a great opportunity to connect. And I really appreciate you inviting me. Wow, it's very exciting. It's very exciting for me because we met a while back in COVID, but, but you, I haven't spoken to you for a long time, but I remember us having a really, really interesting discussion about quantitative data, and it's not at all my expertise. So I'm really um, looking forward to talking more about that and having your expert expertise on it. So to just start by asking you a bit about your background and how you began working in data. Yeah, sure. So currently I am a mathematical statistician, but I wasn't for a long time. <laughs> and I went through many years of schooling to become a, a mathematical statistician. And all of those years really taught me so much about numbers and algebra and calculus and computer programming and the tools of statistical analysis but they they didn't really teach me enough about the implications uh, for humans about the choices that we make when we're applying those. Uh, and those became really, really quickly apparent to me once I started using those tools in practical everyday settings with real people. Yeah. Yeah, I can I can see what you mean. So it very much taught you how to do things, but not, I guess, yeah, what that impact would be on people. I would say they didn't actually teach me how to do things. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> they taught me some tools, but not how to use the tools. Right, I see. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so kind of abstract concepts without really linking them to the world that we live in, perhaps. Yeah, I would say that's closer to my experience. Cool. And yeah, one of the things that you say on your website is that the work that you, well, is that you've seen too much. 
<laughs> what do you mean by this? What have you seen? Yeah, that's a reference to, so I've been doing this for a long time. I, I'm not young and I have seen way too many people who are genuinely trying to use data in a useful way and use data in a rigorous way. So what I mean by that is that, you know, it's, it's obviously very easy to use data and statistics in a harmful way on purpose. That's true of any tool, right? You can turn any tool into a weapon, so to speak. But what I've seen too much of is people who are actually trying to really understand on the ground what's working and even what's working for specific groups of people. So it's not, it's people who are, who are genuinely trying to say center an indigenous community in the global South when they're doing quantitative research about what works or people who are genuinely trying to understand what pedagogy works for an inner city student in the United States and in their genuine attempts to do that are accidentally or unintentionally doubling down on the oppression and the marginalization that those folks are experiencing. And I've seen a lot of that. I've seen that on many different continents, many different sectors. And it was really that which got me interested in building a community that's exploring the practice of doing something different. Okay, that's really interesting. So are you saying that people have good intentions when they're trying to make data work for people and and encompass more broad views than would normally be taken into account, but they fail and somehow kind of manage to make that oppression worse? Or are you saying that they just don't really think about it enough in the first place and then they therefore make things worse? Well, I mean, of course, there are people doing both of those things. Right, yeah. <laughs> I mean, there are lots of people who are, you know, simply don't care. But that's not really where I'm doing my work. I, I'm doing my work in the groups of people, scientists, researchers, community advocates who do care, who are trying to do work that brings a lens of some type of equity to quantitative research. But as long as you are still totally buying into the myth that, you know, as long as we just follow the rules of statistics, these, these results are value neutral. As long as you're buying into that myth, it's almost unavoidable that you are perpetuating the very marginalization and exporting of external worldviews that we're trying to not do. Yeah, <laughs> totally understood. Yeah, I see what you mean. So it's not acknowledging that we're operating in a larger structure, in a larger context, which is almost bigger than some of the tools that we use. And so we need to be aware of that, that whole um, environment in order to really um, get the right results. That's certainly true. And in addition to that, the actual tools themselves the very nuance of how mathematical formulas are derived involve embedding an opinion about the way the world works. 
And so the, the very mathematical formulas, the very specifics about choosing and utilizing methodologies, the ver- of course, the way that we collect data, all of that is also not value neutral. So, so it's not that, that statistics is a bunch of value neutral tools that work you know, that are, that are present and we have to pay attention to the context. That's true. <laughs> but in addition to that, the actual mathematical tools are not value neutral. Yes. And the intricate mathematical choices that we make have direct human and mathematical consequences. And that's what's often overlooked or simply not taught in you know, even very fancy formal education. Yeah, that's so true. I think, and that is really, really important and really interesting because I think often people think of quantitative data as being ob- objective or value neutral, as you say. But maybe if we, for those of us who aren't so expert at quantitative data, we can give a bit more of an overview about what quantitative data is and all the, di- the different variations of it and what kinds of tools you're talking about. Could you give us a bit more of an overview about quantitative data and why it's important? Sure, I'm happy to. And of course, this gets right to the heart of it because what we're taught in you know grade school is the difference. There's two types of data. There's quantitative data and qualitative data. And quantitative data is the objective kind of data and qualitative data is the subjective kind yeah. of data. <laughs> and that's where the problem starts right there. And so getting a good, useful definition of quantitative data can be tricky, but essentially you can think of quantitative data as as data that has been created by translating something into numbers. Yeah. And if you think of it that way, it becomes obvious immediately that that is not going to be objective because <laughs> you're you're taking a, you know, whatever you're measuring, whether it's, you know, fish in the ocean or, you know, people in school, whatever you're measuring is is multidimensional and, you know, exists in context and is, is a concept. And we're taking all of this and trying to translate it into numbers, which is, you know, of course, obviously a subjective value neutral activity, not a value neutral activity. Sorry. Yeah. So that's what quantitative data is numbers. Brilliant. And are you able to give a bit of an example of a few different types of methodologies that are maybe pretty common in terms of quantitative data analysis or that will help us to understand what that looks like in practice? Absolutely. So a really common quantitative data methodology is just taking an average. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you're trying to decide where, you know, what school you want to put your child in and you might want to know what's the average classroom size in that school. So that is a method of manipulating (laughs) quantitative numbers to get a result that will inform a decision. And that's usually where we start with a lot of our workshops is showing people just how many different ways there are to take that average and what the human and mathematical consequences are. And then we can go all the way up to, you know, the very, very complicated quantitative algorithms that are all around us. If you own a smartphone and that smartphone is, you know, telling you 
what the weather's going to be in the next 10 to 15 minutes, you know, now they can tell you when it's going to rain within, you know, five minutes. That is them, that app taking a lot of historical weather data, a lot of predictive algorithms, and a lot of quantitative methods and cooking it all up and, and being probably very useful in giving you a result that is going to help you decide what to wear. Yes. And and you can see why, but potentially it could also be difficult <laughs> when it's something that's, mm-hmm. yeah. Um, yeah. I think that I, I mean, you talk about kind of yeah, the difference between quantitative and qualitative data and certainly I'm much more of a qualitative person or I certainly have feel more confident in the qualitative area doing interviews and focus groups and and such like and all of all of that kind of stuff I often when I when I we do mixed method research at Justice Studio and I often try and describe to the team how to kind of structure a report around quantitative and qualitative data and I like the idea of seeing the quantitative like the bones and the qualitative like the flesh which in a way kind of sometimes makes it you know goes into the stereotypes of quant data being hard and qualitative being soft but I find it useful to think about it in those terms, but I certainly do feel less confident in the quant side of things just because of my background. And I'm very encouraged by one of the things that you say about living in a world where people are not afraid of data. I can definitely empathize with that without fear of kind of numbers. And I know that some people feel much more confident with numbers than other people. Could you kind of say a bit more about your experience of people's fear of quant data and, and numbers? Yeah, I'm really happy that you are bringing up that topic because I think that that topic is a really significant issue when it comes to data equity. For for starters, it's not an accident (laughs) that there are a lot of people that are taught to be afraid of numbers. That's not an accident. And it is a, a very serious outcome of gatekeeping around who is allowed to do, you know, quote unquote, hard science and who is not allowed to do hard science and what rules and regulations you have to be willing to comply with if if you want to build a career or a profession in hard science, or even if you want to be able to make day-to-day life decisions about hard, about, you know, based on data. And it only got worse recently when, you know, we saw things like data scientists are the new rock stars <laughs> and uh, levels of salary or wages for people working in data being really, really high. That just increases the incentives for people who have that kind of status to protect it. Yeah, And to not share it and to gatekeep it and to make sure I have been in so many meetings with people who are intentionally speaking in hard to understand, fancy, jargony words to make sure that nobody there questions them. Everybody there understands that they know how to use these words in a sentence and, and that they are high status. Mm-hmm. and not to be questioned because you know quote unquote numbers don't lie and it's a it's a very serious problem that is probably going to get worse as we see data become even more powerful than it is and even more 
nuanced than it is. So I think that designing situations and stories and ways to reduce the gatekeeping around who gets to feel comfortable around quantitative data is a critical step in data equity. Yeah, I can totally see that. And and I think that what you just said about numbers don't lie, people are constantly saying that the numbers don't lie. Look at the numbers, the numbers don't lie. But the thing is, is that you're saying that they do and they can. And um, they certainly can kind of change things and make them look in a, you know, not as we would necessarily say objective way. Well, I mean, I, I think the numbers don't lie thing is, you know, pe- deciding whether a number is telling the truth or lying or not is important. But more important is what is the specific nuanced question that that number is answering? Right. Yeah. And that's the part that's often overlooked. Like often it's true. Often numbers are telling the truth. But they're telling, numbers don't tell an answer to a a broad Stokes question. Numbers are only useful and good at telling an answer to a very, very specific, nuanced, in-context question. And we need to pay a lot of attention (laughs) to what exact question is that number telling the truth about. Right. Yes, exactly. And we often when we receive data, we don't know the questions that have been asked of it. We just get to kind of see what the results are. But but yeah, having that insight about what was what was the directive at the beginning of that process is is sometimes not shown to us, is it? So we have to be kind of careful about about that. Yeah. Yeah. So so I I don't push back too hard on the numbers don't lie phrase as much as I do on the uh idea of, yeah, numbers are great at telling the truth, actually. But we have to be very specific about what truth they're telling. Yeah. (laughs) Cool. And yeah, in general, I think, as you mentioned, quantitative data is extremely powerful. And it certainly, certainly feels that historically, and to me, and and in the industry of research, it has been given more prestige and scientific validity than qualitative data. It would be great to know more about your thoughts on this. And you've kind of alluded to it a little bit as well with the kind of the rock star data, data scientist thing. But how else has quantitative data been given a bit more status, would you say? Well, I think that one of the issues is that quantitative data is very, very good at helping companies make a lot of money fast. (laughs) And that is, I mean, for what it's worth, you know, certainly in the United States associated with prestige. And so that's, you know, that's just the way, that's just the culture that we're living in right now. And I don't think it's only about numbers. I think it's just about the culture that we live in. Do you think it's increased then as well? Because you were mentioning that maybe it might be even getting worse potentially, that there's going to be more gatekeeping around quantitative data because its data might be getting even more powerful. Well, I think it'll be very, very interesting to see what happens as more and more of our private and public resources turn towards artificial intelligence right? Yeah. because that's another 
way to use numbers. I mean, that's what that is. I mean, and it's not, artificial intelligence is not just numbers, which is kind of good to remember, is that it also is um, incorporating a lot of the qualitative aspects. AI is one of the effective uses actually of qualitative research. So so maybe maybe qualitative research will increase in its prestige. We'll see, won't we? Cool. Well, that would be good. <laughs> yeah, that's really interesting. I, I hadn't properly acknowledged that before. I didn't realize that qualitative data was more, well, was having growing importance in AI. But uh, yeah, AI de definitely does seem to be where a lot of things are heading. And I think that's really also interesting in terms of an equity perspective, AI, and also in general, the, the issues of, of quantitative data. So how would you conceptualize or explain the equity issues in quantitative data? Sure. So the bottom line in quantitative data is that a result, a numerical result that comes out of some kind of quantitative research, whether it's market research, whether it's public sector research, whether it's, you know, kind of formal academic research, the result that comes out of quantitative analysis is the consequence of a whole chain of very small choices. And each one of those choices from, you know, the ones we've been talking about, you know, what type of a mathematical model are you going to use? Uh, what type of relationship are you going to choose for the variables within that mathematical formula to, you know, what, what are you going to do with missing data to how are you going to collect data to um, who gets to own the data? So a whole range of choices. Each one of those choices cumulatively creates the result. Yeah. And each one of those choices privileges a set of values, a set of lived experiences, a specific community. And so for me, data equity is about paying attention to and learning how to competently make those choices so that the results actually align with whatever the stated values and priorities are of the piece of quantitative work that you're engaged in. And maybe you can give us a bit more examples of well, how that works in practice. And, and, and perhaps could you tell us a bit more also about missing data? Because I remember when I first became acquainted with quantitative data, I wasn't really aware of this whole missing data thing and how much missing data can skew a result one way or the other. Or, you know, it, it can kind of certainly affect the outcome. Maybe if you could um, expand a bit about that and, and how we could practically think about these equity issues. In terms of an example of how something like missing data will skew the values is let's say that we are in an elementary school and we're trying to understand if a new way to teach reading has been effective for the third graders. Mm -hmm. And we're collecting data before and after, and one of the things we want to know is, did this new pedagogy work for lots of different types of third graders? And so we collect a little bit of demographic data. We collect data about how old they are. We collect data about what race they are, and we want to, you know, do an analysis to find out, did it work? 
So the first way that we're going to get missing data is that when you're collecting data about third graders, you need some kind of permission. There has to be informed consent. A third grader can't give informed consent. So let's pretend in this example that the parents had to opt in. And so in other words, a child would only be included in this data set if their parent saw the permission slips, read the permission slips, signed the permission slip, and sent it back to school. And when we go to analyze the data, if we take all the data that we have and we just assume that this data set is a, is a nice, complete representation of the third graders in this school and whatever the result is, you know, the, the pedagogy worked or it didn't work, means that that's how well it works for third graders, we're not paying attention to the fact that we actually have a lot of missing data. And all of that missing data is going to be related to something that probably matters to a young child's ability to learn to read in that setting. It's going to be related to a bunch of characteristics of their home. And so if we pretend that we do, we just ignore all of that missing data, we're going to think that we have results for all the third graders in this district when really we only have results from a certain type of third grader in that district. Hmm. And it's funny because there's lots of really good ways in statistics. It's not like we don't have tools to help us make sense of and account for missing data. We do, but we often forget to stop and, and look at a data set and say, who's not included in this data set? And we do that not because we're evil, but because we haven't really been taught about the human impact of what we're about to do. And because we're a lots and lots of people are too busy. Uh, we can of course talk about time and, and data equity, but that's an example of how missing data might matter in an equity sense. That's really, that's really helpful. Thank you. Because that, that helps to, to kind of, to bring it to life. I know that this, I know that I really grappled with missing data when we first came across it and whether or not to include it or, or whether to just caveat it and all of these different things. And, and you don't often realize how important it is and how it can skew the results one way or another. And yeah, I think often people who are just in receipt of the end result of the data don't necessarily know those steps. You said there are many different steps where you can make different choices. Is there anything more you can say about the kind of the different steps that you make and, mm -hmm. and where you might go one way or another and kind of lead you down the wrong path as it were? Absolutely. I could go on for much longer than your listeners would like. <laughs> but one of the ones I was thinking about that might be of interest to the, the work that you and, and your community does is how important it is to use p-values very, very carefully. So I'm not going to go into like the whole talk about what p-values are and what they aren't. Other than to say p-values are not <laughs> a measurement of how likely your results are to be caused by chance. That is not what a p-value is. We're working really closely actually with the president of the American Statistical Association to, to try and figure out a, a better way to think about and use p-values because even he and you know his colleagues and team will tell you there is not a simple soundbite 
type explanation of what a p-value measures. And that's a very serious problem. Does p stand for something? What does p stand for? Oh, that's a great question. I honestly have no idea. It might be probability, Mm -hmm. but that's a great question. But people who use p-values without, as we were talking about earlier, without being very, very clear on what exact question is this result answering, really do a lot of injustice. There are really good examples like Sally Clark from England, which is a very, very common and heartbreaking example of a woman who had two of her infant children die and went to court on suspicion of, you know, wrongdoing and a statistician was called in, did the statistics incorrectly without really paying attention to what the p-value was, the question that the p-value was answering and was convicted and basically had her life ruined by the misuse of statistics. Uh, And luckily, I mean, not luckily, but at least a little bit of good news is that the the Royal Statistical Society did step in and say this is incorrect, but by then it was too late and her life was essentially ruined. But she is only one high-profile case of this happening over and over and over again. And the idea also that you can maybe compare two groups of people. So if we're looking at, we were recently looking at the the number of infants who were diagnosed with a disability who were getting appropriate treatment. And we wanted to see if there was a, a real and meaningful difference between the number of infants by different racial communities. So the number of First Nations infants, the number of Asian infants, the number of African American and Black infants, the number of non-Hispanic white infants, etc. And initially, the team that had commissioned this research wanted us to look at the p-values to see if those differences were quote-unquote real. And that is a a very serious problem because if your groups are different sizes, especially if you have, for example, a dominant racial group, lots of white infants in this sample, and then very small groups, so minority groups, First Nations group was very small in this case, a p-value can't actually answer that question and say, is there a real difference? It's just not equipped. And there is no workaround. <laughs> you, you can't do magic on a p-value and make it answer questions that it can't answer. So that's another choice that is made in the kind of development of the chain of knowledge, which is, you know, what statistic or what test statistic is the formal word for it gets to decide if something is real or not Mm -hmm. and does that test statistic actually answer the question that matters to you and the misuse of that choice ruins people's lives on a regular basis wow yeah i mean some of those examples of really 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 intense this is i guess also the the issue with with the worries about having machine or automatic data mm-hmm. number crunching to and that result can be for real people for example especially in the criminal justice system where I think there's a lot of concern or I, I have a lot of concern about 
that kind of predictability or kind of testing on on people and yeah it seems really problematic yeah it it is it's very high risk Mm. I'm not nearly as worried about the machines as I am about the people (laughs) (laughs) because the machines it's really important to remember that the machines don't do anything Mm -hmm. and even analysis that's done only by humans and done only by hand is every bit as problematic as anything that's done by a machine. Now, some of the issues that come up when we start letting machines do it is that we don't have as much transparency into the choices that the machine is making. But that's a design issue. We, we can design them to, to increase transparency. And maybe we can talk a bit more as about how you define equity as a principle, because you say that you define equity as a principle and not a group of people. It would be great to hear more about what this means, how you structure your work or think about your work. Well, I, we all count as an organization doesn't have a single definition of what equity means. And that's, that's on purpose. That's because our tools don't work with a single conceptualization of equity. Our tools work to align the math with the project's definition of equity. And so that's the first thing that we do in any project and that we teach people to do in their own projects is it's essential, whether it's an equity forward, like an explicit equity project, or not, the first step is getting really explicit about what the priorities of this project are, what the values of this project are, and whose lived experience this project aims to amplify. And here's the thing, (laughs) is that quantitative research is doing that whether we make it explicit or not. So there aren't certain projects that are equity projects that need data equity principles, and then other projects that aren't equity projects that don't need data equity equity principles. That's not the situation. (laughs) Every single quantitative analysis, whether it is explicitly, you know, an equity-focused project or not, every single quantitative project is amplifying a set of values and worldviews. Yeah. It is <laughs> through the act of making these choices and the choices are unavoidable. And so it's really important to explicitly make a statement about that at the beginning of or as early as possible in any project. And if if the person doesn't, if you know, if you're trying to consume a piece of research that, you know, says anything from whether or not you think you should wear sunscreen to where your child should go to school to who's food insecure and should get some support, you can reverse engineer it because it's not like equity is a, you know, an afterthought. Equity is embedded in this research, whether somebody has paid attention to it or not. And sometimes it's prioritizing a set of lived experiences that you feel really aligned with 
and want to make a decision aligned with. And sometimes the research has prioritized a set of values that doesn't align with what you're looking for. And therefore you should not <laughs> make your decision based on those results. Yeah, that's, yeah, that's really interesting. I'm thinking of it a bit like when you're trying to align something in building or something, and it's like a few millimeters out, you know, kind of five millimeters at the beginning can end up mean, meaning like 50 millimeters at the, you know, at the end. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Just that's a great example. So I think it's it's almost like if you don't do anything, then something is still going to happen. So yeah, the do nothing approach doesn't work, right? There's it's, it's going to be chugging along down one road unless we correct it and make sure that it's thinking about the right things. Yeah, that's right. The train is driving on tracks. Yeah. <laughs> you just need to know, you know, what those tracks are designed to do. Yeah, awesome. I remember when we spoke a while back, we we talked a lot about feminist quantitative data analysis, and I know Nat, that you prefer to talk more about more broadly about data equity. It would be great to just understand maybe a little bit about some of these different terms and what your journey's been on in terms of kind of how you've conceptualized data from kind of over the last few years and, and throughout your career. That is true. I used to teach a series of workshops called feminist data analysis, and I still work quite actively in feminist data research circles. In fact, I just spent the morning with a, a group of feminist researchers working on sexual violence reduction. And the reason that I no longer refer to the work I do or the work that We All Count does as specifically feminist is that that's, a, that's one part of data equity, but it's not everything in data equity. Data equity is a set of principles that aligns the work that you're doing, the choices that you're making in the development of quantitative evidence, aligning those choices with a set of values. And if those values are feminist, it works extremely well. But if if you don't, if you're a researcher that doesn't want to use that word and you are looking towards a different kind of equity that might be more appropriate for you in your context, it's still really important to pay attention to how you're aligning that, those mathematical choices with your equity goals and the values that you hold. Yeah. And I guess it helps also in terms of that intersection of the different oppressions and the different characteristics that people have, which which can mean different things for different people. So that speaks to that broader understanding of, of, of equity and the different challenges that we have. Yeah. And very, very rarely, not never, but very rarely is our two different data equity vectors mutually exclusive. We, we do this gathering on Fridays at lunch, just kind of an informal community building drop-in where lots of people share the work that they're doing. And you can see there's so many different intersections. There are people who are working on disability justice. There are people who are working on data equity with a really strong LGBTQ focus. There are people from the global South that are that whose number one goal is working on like anti-colonial 
data equity. And none of those things are mutually exclusive. And depending on your resources, you can't always prioritize everything at once. Mm -hmm. And it's really important to be crystal clear about what set of values is being prioritized on a project by project, result by result basis, because they're going to be different. And it's very bad for science to pretend <laughs> that we're prioritizing everything all at once. Right. Okay. Yeah. How So how does that work in, in practice then? Does that mean that that you have to decide some values at the exclusion of others? Or, I mean, the fear would be that you then, that, that somehow the end result isn't as equitable as it could be, but do you need to do that in order to make sense of the data in the first place? Well, I mean, now we're really into the philosophical aspect of this. <laughs> <laughs> and it really depends on your your opinion and your viewpoints and your philosophies. So, you know, if you're designing, let's let's take something very very basic. Like if we're designing a data collection questionnaire, and we want to decide, let's say, you know, in the United States, people really want to ask about race. And are you going to list races? How are you going to list racial categories? And are you going to list racial categories in alignment with the way the United States Census lists them, which is very, very broad strokes? Or are you going to list very, very specific racial categories? And then are you going to allow people to choose one? Or are you going to allow people to choose as many as they would like? Different choices here are going to privilege different types of people. Yeah. And there isn't a single objective, this is always the best way to do it. It depends on the priorities of the result that you are trying to get right now. Same thing with gender. Here in Toronto, the, the social service sector is trying to align around a set of standardized demographics. And one, one topic that they're working hard on is gender. And of course, there's so many options. You can give two options, male, female. You can give three options, male, female, additional gender identity. You can give, you know, seven or eight options where you're specifically detailing lots. And there's a certain part of the community that really wants to feel seen and really wants those specific um, nuanced gender identities listed. So they feel included and they feel seen. That's very, very valid. There are other people who don't know the meanings of some of those words and don't want to see that because, you know, the community that they're trying to collect data from simply won't answer the question because they don't mm. understand the words. And so again, <laughs> there isn't a one correct way to collect gender identity. You have to pay attention to what the priorities are of this research, what 
the pros and cons are of the different ways of collecting this information, who you're privileging when you're making a different choice about what categories, and then you have to be very realistic about what you're going to do when you have this data. Lots of times people want to collect very nuanced data where people get to select lots of different choices, but then don't have the capacity to analyze it. Yeah. So they just shove it all back into a, a binary, yeah. <laughs> you know, so people get to feel included, but it's a little bit of an illusion. It's a little bit of performative equity in that you get to feel included when you check a box, but your data is immediately either binary or, or discarded and you become a missing, a missing data point because you checked something other than, you know, the big ones that the, the organization can analyze. So it is impossible to generate quantitative social research that prioritizes everybody. Yeah. And so, yeah, you do have to make a choice and yeah, those choices have direct mathematical and human consequences and need to be a transparent part of what goes along with that result. It needs to be considered an essential element of a result. That's really helpful to understand it put that way. And you can see how, yeah, just from those little boxes at the beginning of a survey, for example, how that can then potentially really, you could have real missing people there within the end result of that potentially if they don't feel defined within the right categories and also yeah or you miss people by them not filling out the the box at all so it, it is something that seems very small to somebody who's maybe outside of the research world actually can become very big and and yeah and I, I totally also emphasize with this thing of what do you do? I mean, sometimes when you have too much data, yeah, what do you do with it all? <laughs> you need to, you know, at the end of the day, you have to write a report and you have to give results. And that can be a challenge, I think. And it would be really interesting to know, in fact, because obviously you work with governments and corporates and NGOs are different kinds of organizations. And is there some difference between how these organizations understand data equity? Are some more open to it than others? Or have you noticed any differences between these types of organizations? I would say I wouldn't be able to characterize a sector because there's so much variety within a sector. You know, we have worked with corporations who are like, unless this helps us make money, we do not care. And we have worked with corporations that are like, you know, this is a critical value to our work and, and we're going to make sure that we slow down and train all our staff in how to do this and become more transparent. And I've seen that, you know, from several big, big tech-based companies. So it really varies. Same thing with governments. I mean, within one government, it's very easy to have, you know, one little, you know, governments are not a monolith, mm -hmm. <laughs> like one little section that is that really gets it and really wants to do the work. And then another section that either doesn't want to or simply feels like they're under-resourced or don't have enough time. Same thing in the nonprofit world, you know, I've had somebody say, you know, I have 30 seconds with a person. I can either offer them help or I can collect their data. It's clear to me which I'm going to do. Yeah. And I mean, absolutely. I'm not like, I am definitely not, you know, data is going to save the world kind of a person. I'm like, data is a tool to be used and it always needs to be assessed for, you know, 
ultimate return? Is it actually do data is not useful for data's sake and data is never going to create an equitable world. <laughs> data can be a tool that can support uh, the actions that we're going to take to make an equitable world. But collecting and analyzing enough data on its own is never going to fix any problem, big or large. Cool. But then certainly also, I think that there's not enough understanding in general in the in the data world about equity. And as you say, I think a lot of people may, in the way that you came out of learning about mm -hmm. it, thinking, hold on, this hasn't really fully equipped me to to do the things that I really want to do. Other people may think that they come out of their learning and it has equipped them and they just kind of go off and blindly start using data in general in the mainstream. What have been the challenges bringing uh, equitable concept of data analysis into the world? Absolutely. No question about that. The number one challenge is how deeply embedded the myth of value neutrality is. The myth of if we just do this right, if we can just find the right recipe, we will be able to turn the crank on our quantitative research machine and get value neutral results. And it is very, very hard. It's almost like deprogramming mm -hmm. because at first, you know, when people start to realize, oh yeah, right, the choices that I'm making are always privileging and prioritizing different groups of people. I wasn't doing what I thought I'm doing. And then they just want a new set of rules of, you know, like, okay, so what's the new set of rules? And I'm just going to follow all these new rules and crank out this new, like equitable research. And they're often disheartened to hear, <laughs> like there isn't a new set of rules. Unfortunately, you have to be very thoughtful at every single step in an evidence generation process. And, and that, of course, is a problem in a world where speed and apparent efficiency, even though it's often very short-term efficiency, is rewarded financially and with status. And that's, that's a, probably a whole other podcast of the politics of time. <laughs> yeah, well, actually, I, I'm very interested in the politics of time, so it might well be another podcast episode. And I think it is very interesting, this idea of neutrality. And yeah, that comes into a lot of sectors, I would say. But it's really interesting to think of it in data because it is seen as objective and truth-telling and, and people don't necessarily see the biases or whatever that are already kind of built from or the foundations, I guess, the, the bias foundations, perhaps. What projects in your work have you been most proud of or have most inspired you so far in your data equity work? Oh, man, that is a hard, hard question. <laughs> I would say the projects that make me personally the happiest are the projects where the people working on the projects already understood that what they were being asked to do with data was unjust or was doubling down on the status quo, but that they couldn't, they hadn't yet learned how to say that in a way that got the attention of the people with the dollars. And for me, that's the most fulfilling is not kind of 
opening somebody's eyes to the fact that the analysis they're being asked to do or the data work they're being asked to do is unjust. But people who already know that and are already kind of living with the daily agony of knowing that the work that they're being asked to do, whether, you know, their respondents, you know, who are part of some international development program and they're filling out surveys and they know mm -hmm. that this is actually being used against them, not for mm -hmm. them, or public policy analysts that are that know that something's not quite right here in the way that they're being asked to use data to, you know, decide who gets a house or decide who gets food. It's those folks who are already, you know, really agitating and trying to push back. Handing a tool to people like that that allows them to kind of slice through that myth is, for me, my favorite part. Yeah, no, I can see. Yeah, I think, and, and I think the more people who, who do care about this issue and can join together and can start getting the attention mm -hmm. of the higher ups, as it were, to, to get them to be more critical about some of this stuff is really important. I think some solidarity there is really key, isn't it? Feeling like you're not alone kind of against the machine. <laughs> Absolutely. And remembering that it's not a machine. <laughs> <laughs> that's really important because that the idea that it's the machine that's doing anything has really been used to kind of stomp down on that collective. Like a collective versus a machine is is the picture that's often painted when really it's a collective versus people with a lot of power and privilege not caring <laughs> that this is what's happening. Yeah. And certainly also just not being a bit blind in their, in their, in their views. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And absolutely. I very much agree that it's, it's a collective issue. This, this, any progress is absolutely coming out of people working together, people within sectors working together, and really importantly, people across sectors working together. Yeah, awesome. And, and I guess that's part of the ethos of, of We All Count is bringing people together in that way. We're trying. <laughs> <laughs> so what, what does the future hold for you? What are you looking forward to next in your work? What I look forward to my work is, I already referenced it, it's what we do on Fridays. And I kind of think it sums up the, the conversation that you and I have been having every Friday at noon Toronto time. So I know that's not a great time for you, but that's when we hold an informal community gathering where people get to talk about what's working, what's not working. We share solutions, we share resources. And, you know, sometimes there are very, you know, high powered people with fancy job titles and organizations that you would definitely recognize. And then some people there are, are, you know, people who are respondents, you know, people who are contributing data, the fuel of a data project, contributing data, talking to each other in the same space. And no matter what is going on in my week, that is what I'm looking forward to is Fridays. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds awesome. I mean, I feel like lots of people look forward to Fridays, but that's a very a good specific reason for looking forward to Fridays. Yeah. Yeah. And so if people want to find out more about that or find out more about you and or we all count, where can they find you? Where Where's the best place? Yeah. So the kind of digital home of all things we all count is very easy to find. It's weallcount.com. 
And on wheelcount.com, there's a tab that's called Learn With Us. And in that tab, you can find all the information about our Friday gatherings. Our Friday gatherings are called Talking Data Equity. And it's it's always free. It's a drop-in. Anybody is welcome. We do regularly have people from Europe who I always feel bad for them spending their Friday nights with us. But we also record most of them and share those freely. So if, you, if you're interested but don't want to spend your Friday night doing that, you can always watch the recording and you can submit questions in advance and things like that. So Talking Data Equity is, is where I would recommend. Amazing. Thank you. Well, it's been really, really interesting and informative. I'm, yeah, it's it's been really good for me because, as I said, I'm not I'm not a quantitative expert at all, and so it's really, really useful to hear more about your work and how you conceptualize data equity, which I think, I mean, completely on board with it all, and it's really important. So, the more people that can know about it, the better. So, thank you so much. Well, thank you so much. Thank you. It, it has been really, really fun to hear, you know, your point of view on the topic and the types of questions that it raises for you are really helpful. Thank you for listening to Justice Studio Sessions. We have so enjoyed deep diving into social justice with you. Justice Studio provides compassionate consultancy rooted in social justice. If you would like to work with us, please visit our website at www.justicestudio.org or email us at info at This podcast relies on your support. If you love our content and would like to see this podcast reach more people, please take a moment to give us a five-star rating or leave us a lovely review. We would be delighted for you to share your thoughts, musings, or favourite parts of the podcast with us on social media. You can tag and or follow Marianne at creatrix.london and Justice Studio at Justice Studio on all the major social sites. This podcast was hosted by Marianne Moore and produced by Justice Studio Limited. The music was by Luke Fraser at The Tonic and the artwork was by Marianne. Thank you so much for listening.